is a very strong endorsement, okay, from the president, Donald J. Trump. Uh, I've been told about this great podcast, okay, but not a lot of people know the podcast. It's, a, it's like when you had radio, but you do like, but it's not on the radio. It's like radio without the radio, and then you like listen and you you play it when you want. It's a great thing. These, you know, I I think we might have to get into the podcast a little bit, maybe a presidential podcast. We'll see what happens. But I was uh, told about Cam and Ewan, okay, and that they run this strong podcast dealing with PR and legal issues. Okay, and those are two of the things that are very important to me because I have a lot of legal issues and I'm tremendous at public relations, okay? So the fact is, I think the PR and Law podcast with Cam and Ewan is kind of a must-listen, okay? Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go! This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Thank you for the endorsement, Mr. President. I think he's going to have a little bit more time now to listen to podcasts. Welcome to episode 31 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. And Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. It's our way of sort of marketing. Uh, and you can also follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook with the account name PR Law Podcast. All one word, PR Law Podcast. Uh, and you can subscribe to the show on YouTube or SoundCloud and sign up for our newsletter, please. Uh, nice to see people uh, getting the newsletter. And you can do that at prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, uh, a lot has happened in the last seven days. What's going on with you? Uh, Cam, I'm exhausted. Absolutely. I, I haven't watched this much cable news in uh, at least 20 years. It's just <laughs> been, it's been overwhelming. You know, the, the, uh, the night, the night of the election, uh, you know, when it was became abundantly clear that we weren't going to uh, know who the winner was, I went to bed and at about three o'clock in the morning, I woke up, just sort of jumped out of bed to someone on the street just screaming F-bombs for, for some reason. I don't know why. I, mm. I live in a generally quiet neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I immediately concluded that that meant that there had been a winner one way or the one way or the other. So I jumped to my phone, turned on the light and started scrolling through only to learn that, of course, nothing, nothing had happened. But, you know, just that that level of anxiety and tenseness, Cam, it just it seemed to just carry on throughout the week. I wasn't sleeping. It was compromising my ability to do some work. And uh, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm just exhausted. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, it was quite an experience. I mean, I, I feel like we've had a lot of elections lately in the U.S. that are are really remarkable for some uh, for some reason or another. I mean, obviously, the, the recount in 2000 was big. I think Barack Obama winning was big, being the first African-American to, to, to win the presidency. And then this one. And we knew in advance. I mean, Trump had said that, um, you know, the only way he would lose is if the election was rigged. So I think that added to some of the the anxiety around it. Um, and, you know, over here, it is an election 
election morning for us in Hong Kong, right, with the time difference. So it really is sort of Wednesday morning when we're watching CNN and, uh, you know, some other news outlets. I had a meeting, you know, like a, a budget meeting in the company that morning, and we, a couple of us got there early, so we turned on CNN on, on, on the laptop and was watching results. So, yeah, it, it definitely was definitely was uh, a, a busy week news-wise, and, you know, we have a, have a winner. I guess it was just, what, uh, several hours ago, 12 hours ago or so from when we record this, uh, that Joe Biden was declared uh, the victor. So he is officially president-elect. There was uh, one thing that bothered me, though. You and you know I've been kind of tough on on journalism because, I mean, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. I think he obviously is a is a problem. And I think he was, you know, uh, somebody the likes of whom, you know, the media have really never dealt with before. And I feel like, you know, the media have let us down in a number of ways. I think I think Trump portrayed them as the enemy. And I think the, the, the White House press corps and others sort of took up that mantle and sort of became that uh, over time. And there's obviously a lot of skepticism in the right wing circles over sort of mainstream media. And a lot of it is nonsense. But I, I do think when we dive into it a bit, you can start to see where maybe they have a point. And there was an issue on election night which, like I said, was morning in Hong Kong. And, you know, I did watch Biden come out and speak. And I'm going to talk about more, more about this in the, in the PR segment a bit later. But he came out and spoke first. Uh, and I, I watched that. And I was on a conference call when President Trump came out to speak. So I didn't hear what he had to say until his speech was over. And I heard on CNN, they said that the president has demanded that we stop counting votes. And I heard that repeatedly all over the place on Twitter, on MSN. Um, it, it, it was just, you know, how can the president say that we can't count votes? Because that's part of how you how you manage an election. You count the votes. Until I saw a tweet from Ben Shapiro, Ewan. You know, the sort of nerdy uh, right-wing firebrand uh, who runs the Daily Caller. And I do, yes. You know, he tweeted that Trump never said that. And I thought, this is interesting. So I went back to the tape. And here is what the president had to say. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay? So he said he wants all voting to stop. All voting to stop. Literally seconds after that, here's uh, Joe Scarborough on MSNBC. The president said something. I'm not sure if he means it. I'm not sure if he can do it. But he said, and Danny, let me start with you and then Kate and Terry also. And he says he's going to go to the Supreme Court and get them to stop the counting of the votes. Which is not what he said. Now, this is not a huge issue. And I think you could make a strong case that trying to infer what the president was meaning could be that he wanted to stop the counting of the votes. But he said at other times, he, he, he doesn't want to count votes that came in late or that were cast late, and that that has been his issue. And I think that nuance just disappeared entirely. Uh, and there was a, you know, a, a round chorus of criticism of the president for trying to, to stop counting the ballots. And, um, you know, this stuff sort of plays into critics' hands. Like, you understand it, I understand it, this can happen sometimes, it's not that big of a discrepancy, but yet it still is, it's still careless, and it still portrays the president in a way that isn't accurate. And um, I, I just think that's that's damaging. I, I just feel like the, the media lets us down when things like that happen. 
Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with you, Cam. And I think this election coverage was really a fascinating exercise in the dissemination of misinformation and how that can very, very quickly manifest itself. Um, I, in particular, you know, I had mentioned that I, I was paying close attention to the election officials. Well, two in particular really, really caught my attention. The election official in Georgia and the election official in Nevada. I don't know who these two individuals are. I had never heard of them prior to the election, but these two two individuals were, I, I thought, nothing short of astounding in their press conferences. They were being poked and prodded to say things um, that would lead to a particular result. They didn't take the bait in any way, shape or form. They gave very consistent, precise information uh, about what was going on. But what I found to be really, really quite intriguing was how that was then picked up by the media. And I was, you know, I, I knew we were going to be talking about this. And as an exercise, I was going between as many different uh, of the media sources as I possibly could. So I was jumping between ABC, NBC, CNN, Fox News. I spent a lot of time listening to Patriot, which is the Breitbart um, Sirius XM channel and the reporting of those two specific individuals in, in Georgia and Nevada, because of course those were two of the highly contested states, there was misinformation all over the place. And again, it was really nothing more than an exercise of this is what happens when you have 24 seven news coverage where people are trying, you know, the networks are trying to keep you on their particular channel. And they're trying to continue to keep you invested in, in the talking points such that people were, were misconstruing information. They were misreporting facts. They were just sort of providing opinions that were inconsistent with what, what was coming out from these two particular election officials. And again, no individual network had a monopoly on that. I saw examples across the network. So I think for those who are, who are prepared to sort of go back and study this, and I think there will be any number of historians, um, uh, political scientists over the next number of years who will, I think there are all kinds of examples of what not to do through a process and the concerns of, of a 24 hour news cycle and the implications of the social media that goes along with it. Final thought on, on this point. Um, you know, what you, what you said is, is true. And I think there has to be some closer attention paid to, to the actual facts, but I think a, a big issue as well is just, it, it's no secret that the media is not really a fan of Trump. I think shareholders in media companies might be fans of Trump, uh, but, 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 journalists by and large are not. And so you can see that when there are these assumptions made about what he's saying and what they think he means. And I, I don't even think it's conscious. I think they just hear something um, and sort of go in, in that direction. And, um, you know, this has really, really hurt. It's hurt the credibility of, of, of journalists at publications that I genuinely trust or used to trust a, a whole lot more. I mean, I'm in the New York Times, the Atlantic, uh, New Yorker kind of bubble for sure, like the, the liberal media bubble. But I do make a point of checking Drudge Report, for instance, from time to time. Uh, Breitbart from time to time. A lot of the stuff on there is garbage. Yeah, absolutely. But sometimes there are articles and you go, wow, this this is legit. And it wasn't picked up, you know, by, by other journalists. So it's, um, it's a good exercise. It's, it's, it's re really something that um, people should for sure keep in mind.
Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All would word PRLAW Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at PRLawPodcast.com. That's all one word. Ask us at PRLawPodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag PRLAWPOD. Take it away, Ewan. All right, Cam. So I wanted to talk about Proposition 22 in in California with with everything else going on with the election. You know, I really think that this this issue hasn't received the kind of coverage that it should have uh, because it could have far reaching implications for for labor and employment laws um, across the U.S. So, again, you might recall, Cam, we talked about this in episode 20. And to give just a little bit of background for for our listeners who may not be up to speed with what Prop 22 is all about, um, going back to August 10th, a California court ruled that Uber and Lyft drivers are employees and not independent contractors under uh, the state's gig work law, which is AB5. This was a law that came into effect in California on, on, on January 1 and imposes uh, this what's called this ABC test to determine if someone is a contractor or an employee. And under this test, it became clear, well, that Uber and Lyft drivers and other gig workers could very well be deemed employees. Um as you can imagine, Uber and Lyft were not particularly happy about mm-hmm. this. So they spent a great deal of money. And by a great deal of money, Cam, we're talking over $200 million. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, to put a question on the ballot in California known as Proposition 22. And this is what a yes vote would entail. And this is, again, taken directly from from the, the, the question itself. So a yes vote supported the initiative to define app-based transportation, rideshare, and delivery drivers as independent contractors and adopt labor and wage policies specific to app-based drivers and companies. So again, 202 million bucks spent. Uber 57 million, DoorDash 52 million, Lyft 49 million, Instacart 32 million, Postmates 13 million bucks, all in a push to get Californians to vote yes um, on this particular prop. So a no vote uh, opposed the initiative, obviously, meaning that California's AB5 law could be used to decide whether app-based drivers are employees or independent contractors. And to put the spending in perspective, Cam, Mm -hmm. the no side received $19.75 million, all from from labor unions or union-affiliated companies. So effectively, you know, Uber and company, they spent 10 times the amount of cash um, trying to convince Californians that, you know, you want to vote yes on this. And um, do you know what the results were, Cam? Do you have any? You know did, you, what, did you hear? Ewan, I, there was so much happening this week. I, I, I've seen this one <laughs> mentioned in articles, but I haven't gone very deep. But I am guessing that they voted no. Well, actually, 58.5% Cam voted yes. Really? Wow. They voted okay. yes. 
Um, so as you can imagine, uh, Uber, Lyft and company are, are very, very happy. I saw that their stocks all jumped significantly in market cap on yeah. all these businesses increased significantly. Um, and, you know, they've really, really, really dodged a bullet here, Cam, because had the no side won, you know, this would have forced these companies to provide legally mandated benefits, including health insurance sick leave to drivers, minimum wage guarantees. Um, you know, I, I saw that Dan Ives, who's an analyst at, at Wedbush Securities, he estimated that it would cost Uber an additional $500 million and Lyft an additional $200 million each year if they had to pay U.S. drivers as employees. So, you know, we've sort of talked before on the show, Cam, about these these instances of what I like to call all or nothing litigation. These are these are the cases where, you know, usually large companies, because they're the ones with the cash that can do it, where they know that if they lose on this particular issue, their business is done. Yeah. It's game over. So they will throw absolutely anything and everything at the wall to make it stick. And, you know, I know you follow tech companies far more closely than I do, Cam, and you're pretty familiar with a lot of these ride sharing apps. Um and you know full well what the implications would be if Uber and Lyft could not operate in California. And we knew that that was going to be the conclusion, right? We knew that there was no way they were going to change their position and, you know, have Uber drivers and Lyft drivers as employees such that they would be entitled to all of these benefits. I mean, the company just would have packed up and gone home and lost gosh knows how much money in the process. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's huge for Uber and Lyft. And like you say, if, if, if this did result in a no vote, you know, there's questions on whether these businesses could continue operating. I mean, it's that big of a deal. And California is, is, is a key market also for, for both of those companies. I mean, that's where they get a, a, the lion's share of, of their rides and, and drivers. So it's, it's a very important market. And also if California had gone that way, you know, there's a, a chance that other sti- states might, might follow after that. So how did they get people to vote yes? I mean, what was the, what was the selling? What was the pitch? Well, I mean, my understanding is that one of, I mean, one of the things that they did, um, and I believe if you go back to episode 20, Cam, we talked about this briefly, Uber, for example, when you would open the app, it would directly link their users to literature. You know, here, here's a breakdown of why we need you to vote yes on Prop 22 come election day. So, I mean, they they really, really did an, an impressive rollout talking about all of the benefits, the alleged benefits to drivers by continuing to be uh, characterized as independent contractors. And, you know, they use all of the same sorts of arguments that we see in pro-independent contractor arrangements, right? The freedom to come and go as you please, the freedom to work for, for multiple uh, employers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what we know about the reality of that dynamic, Cam. First of all, they're very, very, there are very, very, very few true independent contractors. In fact, you know, a, a senior lawyer that I used to work with, you know, he used to joke that really the only truly independent contractors are long haul truck drivers. And you think about all of the characteristics of what makes a long haul truck driver. Well, typically they own their own truck. They don't have an office because they're 
you know, spending all their time at a long haul truck. They own their own tools. They can, they can drive, um, product for multiple employers such that, you know, they are their own boss in the truest sense of the term. But rarely is that actually the case in a lot of, you know, quote unquote, independent contractor relationships. And we continue to see a lot of litigation around this issue here in Canada, specifically in the province of Ontario, where you have employees or individuals who are only working for one company, right? So you go into an office for one company, you're there five days a week, 40 hour or 40 hours a, a week. You are only providing services to that employer. You are using their computers, working from their bricks and mortar office. They provide you with business cards from their company. In these situations, these individuals are not independent contractors. They are employees, regardless of what your agreement happens to say. And the courts have been pretty clear on that, that, you know, it doesn't matter if you've signed an agreement waiving your rights to that of an employee saying, no, no, I am an independent contractor. That's not how it works. If the relationship is such that it's an employer-employee relationship, then that's how the law will, will govern. So these true independent contractor situations are actually quite, quite rare. And that's what makes the, the, the rideshare situation so fascinating in the States. And I think the reason why this is something that people need to read about and need to watch is it's not the end of the story. I think inevitably we're going to see businesses. This is going to give them a, you know, a boast of confidence to reclassify workers as independent contractors. And I think we're going to see a lot of these gig companies looking to expand their right to classify their quote their workers as independent contractors outside of California and across the U.S. So I've made this argument on the show uh, before, but it is that um, the opportunities afforded by Uber and Lyft and Airbnb and other companies like that are opportunities that we just didn't have previously. I mean, there's more opportunity for people today in many uh, instances than there were even 20 years ago because of all of these sort of gig economy style jobs. And I think if you talk to people who drive for Uber or Lyft, and I mean, I've talked to people in Uber all over the world, basically, you know, they all are very grateful to have that opportunity. So I think overall, it's 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 a strong net positive. I think where the issue comes in, especially in the United States, is because healthcare is tied to your employer. So if you're getting benefits from your full-time job where you're classified as an employer, that's great. Um, And it seems like you're being cheated out of something if you are working full-time hours, but you're considered a contractor. I get that argument, but I also think that you know, healthcare should not be the way it is in the United States. Uh, and it should be like the rest of the developed world where it's a, it's a right, it's a guarantee uh, that you have. And that would remove a lot of, a lot of the concern, not all of it. I mean, there's other things too, like pensions and, and other benefits. But um, I, I think on the whole, this gig economy stuff is, is good. It's, it's good for people looking for work. It's good for people who want to do it as a second job. I think very few people are, are doing Uber as their primary job around the world. Uh, a lot of people are doing it as an extra thing on the, on the evenings or weekends or, or whenever it might be. So I'm personally happy that the, that the yes side won, but on, by the same token, we definitely have to, to monitor these companies and make sure that they're, they're not getting away, uh, you know, exploiting or abusing their, their employees or their independent contractors. Well, Cam, I'm glad you raised that last point about, you know, I think the majority of uh, Uber and Lyft drivers 
you know, they're working, they're driving as a second job or to make some extra money on the side. And sure that, you know, that, that obviously happens. I don't think that you're wrong. And I think that there are some advantages in the gig economy in that regard, but, 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 um, according to, to one Seattle study, at least a third of Uber and Lyft drivers work more than 32 hours a week. And according to that study, these drivers account for 55% of all rides and therefore account for a disproportionate amount of the company's revenue. So I think this idea that the bulk of the money that Uber and Lyft makes is on the backs of individuals that are just casually driving for extra cash is something of a myth. Now, do we know this definitively? No. Um, You know, as we, as you can probably imagine, Uber and Lyft guard this data under lock and key. So do we know for certain that the, the majority of their money is coming from full-time drivers? No. Will we ever know that? But I think that that's unlikely, but, um, there certainly is some evidence out there to suggest that that may be the case. And if it is, well, then again, we get into that sort of precarious ground of, is this really to the benefit of the drivers themselves? If the vast majority of their cash is coming from one source, and if the company's um, majority of cash is coming from full-time drivers, is this really a gig economy benefit in sort of that romanticized notion of what that can possibly mean? Is 32 hours a week considered a full-time job? (laughs) Well, I would say no, but again, it depends entirely upon the jurisdiction that you're in. So I can't really speak to what qualifies as a full-time job um, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, because obviously laws vary in that regard. See, this is where I feel like the argument kind of falls apart, because uh, I don't think 32 hours is full-time either, uh, but your your point stands in terms of you know jurisdiction by jurisdiction. But for the sake of argument, I mean, the, the best stat that they have uh, to argue over is basically 33% work 32 hours, uh, at least 32 hours a week. So, so just one third of the company. Oh no. Well, well, yes. Yeah. But that accounts for 55% of all rides, right. And therefore accounts for a disproportionate amount of the company's revenue. Right. But we're not talking about the company's revenue. We're talking about trying to protect employees. Right. So, so a third work, I mean, I'd like to know how many actually work full time. If it's only one third at 32 hours, I'm sure it's got to be even less than for, for somebody working 40 hours or more. I, I just think it's a small group and the proportion of profit, I kind of feel like is irrelevant in this sense, because we really are talking about hours of the, the, the gig worker and the protections the gig worker gets, regardless of sort of how profitable that that might be. But I think the other part you mentioned is that the workers here are, um, you know, somehow being exploited. And I I would love it if there was a poll of Uber drivers saying, you know, how do you feel about this? Because, because we're, we're stepping in and sort of arguing on their behalf or, or arguing on the behalf of a couple of drivers that have spoken up or, or, you know, taken this to court. Um, But I, I, I'm fairly confident that overall, you know, if, if you were to say, you know, that this is going to become a full-time employee of this company, and then there's a good chance the company is going to pull out of this area. 
overwhelmingly, I think you'd have the Uber drivers wanting them to stay under this current situation. And to me, that's sort of the, the magic of capitalism, because, you know, we've reached this level where, you know, they're willing to work uh, on a gig sort of economy scale. Um, and then the company does well as well. So, but you're right, Ewan, I, I think we're, we're probably, you know, um, going to hear about this a lot more uh, in the years ahead and in sort of other other industries too. Yeah, look, I, I know we need, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about and we need, we need to move on. But, um, you know, I, I just want a quick comment on your last point and then, you know, one last point after that. It, the, <laughs> the idea that because the company could pick up and leave and that means that the drivers therefore want them to stay and will support whatever, you know, situation or circumstances that they can continue to work under. That certainly doesn't mean that it's a good situation from a a labor and employment perspective. It simply means that they have and are aware of the fact that they have no choice, that either I, I continue to work under substandard conditions for this company or I don't work at all. And I don't really know that that's necessarily the, the, the best, the best solution to be looking at either. But then my, my final point, and this is just sort of a a more, a broader point cam about the business model of Uber and Lyft from a more general perspective, which, you know, seems to sort of have an inherent flaw. If you're the driver, the more the company grows cam, the more drivers there are on the street, right? Then it becomes a simple reality of sort of supply demand economics, because the more drivers on the street, the lower the cost of the rides, the lower the cost of the rides, the less money the drivers are making. Um, I mean, right now, as I understand, there are 3 million drivers in the United States that are receiving unemployment benefits paid for by taxpayer dollars, yet Uber and Lyft haven't actually contributed anything to these benefits. I think that's also a problem. Um, Where does this go from here? I don't know. I think it's going to be a fascinating story to continue to follow and what the fallout is from Prop 22 in, in the other states, and we will stay on top of it. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, Ewan, we're going to return to the election here and and feel free to jump in uh, at any time. You know, as, as I was thinking about sort of what to talk about today, there's so many different things, you know, going on. That's why I'm glad that you picked the the story out of California, because that didn't get much coverage. Um, and, and even within the election story, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And I think, uh, you know, uh, many steps along this sort of chronology from election night to today, there were a lot of key decisions made, I think, by communications people or advice given by communications people to the candidates, and then also advice about what goes into uh, a speech, um, because we had, you know, both candidates spoke after midnight, uh, which would have been early Wednesday morning, when we didn't have the final result. And then obviously, they've spoken since then as well. So I kind of want to walk through this bit by bit, and sort of point out some some potential key turning points. So I I think our listeners are going to be familiar with the overall context of the election. I think it's been in our face for quite a while now. Um, And that that President Trump had uh, already articulated that, that he would likely challenge any results that didn't go his way. And there was a concern if there was a close election that he may just declare victory and that 
you know, the many people that voted for him may, may, may take that. And it could be difficult to reverse. And I think that fear came from 2000 when, you know, George W. Bush was declared president, but then there was some concern afterwards uh, about the vote totals. It's very hard to sort of change that perception once everyone has has already made that declaration. So the first interesting point, Ewan, really, was the fact that Joe Biden came out first. So we were watching the the, the election results roll in. It looked like he was going to take Arizona. Uh, it's at that time still looked like Pennsylvania, Georgia, North Carolina were, were, were heading to Trump. Um, but it wasn't definitive yet. There were still more more votes to come in. And I thought it was quite courageous and astute for Biden to come out first because he had the opportunity to frame what was happening and what was going on himself before the president could. And I think that was a very risky move um, for, for, for uh, Biden's team. But I think ultimately, you know, it was really, really important in terms of what happened the days after that as the count continued. Um, and so, you know, he did not declare victory in the speech, but he came very close. Um, here's what, what, what Biden had to say uh, when he came out after midnight election night. We feel good about where we are. We really do. I'm here to tell you tonight, we believe we're on track to win this election. He went on there. I thought he came right up to the line because he doesn't want to declare victory either. And he has to, uh, you know, give, give, give uh, credence to the process, which he did. But he came very close. And a couple of times he said, I think we're going to win. We're on the way to winning. We're on the path to winning. But he stopped just short of claiming victory. Yeah, he did. I, you know, I, I listened to the, I watched that speech as well. And I thought the, the really good message that came across was he was already trying to mend wounds, right? The idea that I'm going to be everyone's president. I'm not going to be a Democratic president or a Republican president. I'm not going to represent blue states or red states. I'm going to represent all Americans. Um, already, he understands that he's going to have a lot of work to do in trying to to come up the middle and bring both sides together. And I thought, despite not declaring outright victory, that that, at least to me, seemed like the mess, the, the best message to be conveying. So he didn't give that message on election night. On election night, he stopped short because I think that would have been slightly inappropriate as well to say, like, I'm going to govern on behalf of all of all of America because he hadn't yet won. So he kept his remarks quite, quite, quite short on election night. Uh, here's another clip, though. I thought he, he got the tone right. And I think this is kind of what you're talking about, Ewan. He, he didn't seem over eager or anxious or, you know, really wanting to declare himself the victory and get it over with. You know, we could know the results as early as tomorrow morning, but it may take a little longer. As I've said all along, it's not my place or Donald Trump's place to declare who's won this election. That's the decision of the American people. But I'm optimistic about this outcome. Again, I think effective. He came out. He said, we're going to obey or we're going to follow the process. We're going to count the votes. Donald Trump nor him can claim victory. It's the American people that claim victory. And I thought um, overall, I thought he might be a tad too 
aggressive in in his sort of repetition that he's on the path to victory. I understand it. I don't think it's a, a fatal mistake. Uh, I think that's just me being very, very picky. But I think overall, uh, he did extremely well on election night. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could disagree with that. So it was only a matter of time then. So after Biden speech was over, um, the, the news anchors on the main cable channels uh, said that, you know, President Trump was preparing to speak. And I, I, my guess is the Trump campaign didn't think Biden would speak. And if you remember back in 2016, when the results were not entirely clear, Hillary Clinton didn't didn't give a speech that night. She didn't give her concession speech until the following day. And I, I, my guess is, and I don't know if this is a fact, that they probably thought they had a bit more time to get out there. And Biden jumping up and going first was probably a little bit of a surprise because they beat them to the punch to kind of frame, frame that discussion. Um, the other thing, I thought Donald Trump looked quite tired. I thought Biden looked tired too, but he he was giving he was trying to sort of summon energy and positivity, which I think he was able to do. But the president came out, he, he looked exhausted actually. And 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 for the first time I thought he was quite low energy, uh, which is the term that he used for Jeb Bush. But you know, he was clearly feeling kind of melancholy. And and like Biden, he went through the states that that you know, he felt that uh, the GOP was ahead. And then he said everything stopped. You know, things were going well, and then they stopped. And one of the first things he complained about was the fact that Arizona was called for Biden. Arizona has been a red state for an extremely long time. The votes were fairly close. And ironically, it was Fox News who called Arizona for Biden. That enraged the Trump campaign, and he addressed it during his speech on election night. Uh, Arizona, we have a lot of life in that and somebody said somebody declared that it was a victory for and maybe it will be i mean that's possible but certainly there were a lot of votes out there that we could get because we're now just coming into what they call trump territory i don't know what you call it but these were friendly trump voters and that could be overturned the gentleman that called it i watched tonight he said well we think it's fairly unlikely that he could catch well fairly unlikely and we don't even need it. We don't need that. That was just a state that if we would have gotten it, it would have been nice, Arizona. But there's a possibility, maybe even a good possibility. In fact, since I saw that originally, it's been changed and the numbers have substantially come down just in a small amount of votes. So we want that obviously to stay in play. So I don't think we need to critique Trump's speech very carefully, because I think at this point, we're all very familiar with sort of the, the way he speaks and the things that, that he says. I actually thought this was the point that he made that had the most credibility, because as we're recording this, it's Sunday, the 8th, Arizona still hasn't been called. It is close. The president was right. And it was a bit surprising that Fox News uh, went first. Um, so, so on this on this point, I, I, I do think that, you know, this was something that was effective for him. Yeah. And I mean, I, I understand it's entirely speculative, Cam, but I mean, what are your thoughts as to why Fox would want to jump out ahead of all of the other networks in that regard? Is it simply just a brand recognition thing of where, you know, we're, we're the first ones to call it? Um, I mean, why, why would they go out on a limb in that regard? Yeah. 
That's exactly why. Uh, this is highly competitive. You've got the, your major cable news channels, you know, your regular networks, and you know, lots of other competition out there. Um, normally, the AP is often the most sort of respected when they call a race, but it's it's competitive. And if you think each each network has their own statistics team or data team sitting somewhere that's looking at the results coming in and calculating, you know, it, can this lead be overcome or not, or can we? declare a winner here. And Fox has always had a, a, a solid, uh, they call it decision desk, I think. Um, and so they, they, they felt comfortable with that. And I think, you know, 2000 was such a disaster. Um, there were states called for Bush and for Gore that had to be called back and then changed again later. And since then, uh, the networks have been a lot more careful in calling these states. But the minute they feel comfortable or the second they feel comfortable doing it, they do do it. And it, it is good if they can get out ahead of the competition, which, you know, Fox did there. I don't think it was a political decision in any way, um, because obviously Fox has been quite friendly uh, towards towards Trump. But after the Arizona instance, we get into the core of the speech that Trump gave election night that drew so much criticism. Here's what he had to say. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. So there's a lot to unpack in here, and I'm not going to, you know, review what a lot of pundits have already talked about, sort of the the real setting of a precedent of a president questioning the electoral process, which is, you know, sacrosanct, uh, you know, in, in, in United States democracy. Um, but aside from all of that, a couple of points here. One, low energy. I think it comes across in this clip as well. And he seems to lack conviction. Normally when Trump is speaking and he believes something, he really kind of comes at it quite strong. And I didn't feel that here. And I think, you know, there is a good chance that uh, this was late at night and he is in his seventies. So, you know, it kind of makes some sense. Um, the second point, obviously there, there's been no details or reports of any fraud or any problems. Um, so obviously he couldn't point to, to any examples of that. You and I think you would know this. He said he's going to take the case to the Supreme Court. I don't think you can just show up at the Supreme Court. And, <laughs> it generally doesn't work that way, and, no. And ask them to, 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 to decide on what. I don't even know. And then the fourth part, when, you know, when he said that this is a fraud and he talked about, you know, the election being stolen, he got cheers in that room. And I guess that stuff still sort of amazes me because there's a lot of smart people in there and they've gone through elections before. And I know that you have to sort of make your boss look good. I've worked in politics, you and as you know, and for sure you would you would clap just to make sure that there's some sound there uh, for the cameras to pick up. But it was still kind of kind of eerie that there was there was so much support for what he was saying. Cam, I wanted to ask you, do you believe you know is this just another example of trump speaking entirely off the cuff which we know his base has always loved about him it's always been one of the great selling features of the man that he's not like a conventional politician he speaks his mind um 
do you think that that's what this was an example of? Do you think that there's any possibility that language along the lines of fraud and theft <laughs> were in any way sanctioned or presented to him as the way to go by his communications team? No, I, I think this one, you and I mean, we've heard the president talk about this even since before 2016's election. You know, he said that the election's rigged and that there's a you know global cabal of uh, of of you know wealthy people that are going to keep him away from the presidency. And he, I mean, he had all of these sort of conspiracy theories into you know what might. Uh, be the cause of him losing. Uh, and then he won. And obviously there was no issues really after that. He did say there was a uh, 3 million uh, votes in California that were fraudulent that was never been able to, to, to prove. I think if the Democrats wanted to steal an election, adding votes in California probably wouldn't be, <laughs> wouldn't be a, uh, a wise strategy. So you know th- those words steal fraud i do think that comes from trump i think it's sort of consistent with with um you know the way he's talked about things um all along and he looked defeated and i'm i'm not just saying that because he he was i mean i i like to watch trump speeches actually because he can often be very entertaining and you know a lot of what he says is like you say it's off the cuff he speaks like a normal you know regular person he's relatable but he did seem downcast in this in this speech and um you know, I'm sure that's that's also how he felt. You know, and in the days since election night, obviously both candidates have spoken a couple of times. Trump has doubled down, you know, on his allegations of of fraud. Um, you know, he's demanding the vote stop, the count stop. Now he is demanding that the count stop in in Pennsylvania, but he wants the count to continue in Arizona. So there's no there's no real consistency here other than, you know, just trying to figure out if there's a way to get around this, um, which takes us to today and uh, Joe Biden. Well, I guess it's it's Saturday uh, in the U.S. and Canada where, you know, Joe Biden was officially called as the president elect. And this was something I think we we knew was coming uh, about 24 hours to, to 36 hours before that, you know, we could see the numbers, we could see, you know, how many precincts and, and were reporting and how many votes were left outstanding and sort of where the candidates were. So it wasn't a surprise, but it was still still a big news story. And, you know, on this one, I have to give Joe Biden a lot of credit. I thought he he really read the mood of the country well. Um, this goes back to what you were talking about, Ewan, about being conciliatory and, you know, talking to the Trump people and and saying he wanted to, to be a president for everyone. So I'm going to play a clip of Biden here as well. This is from his uh, official uh, victory speech. For all those of you who voted for President Trump, I understand the disappointment tonight. I've lost a couple times myself, but now... Let's give each other a chance. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again. And to make progress, we have to stop treating our opponents as our enemies. They are not our enemies, they are Americans. They are Americans. You know, it's interesting, Ewan, when Biden was was picked in the in the primary process, I was very unsure of him as a candidate. Uh, I think he's, you know, he's very well known already by that point. He was first elected to the Senate in 1972. So, he, I mean, he's been in politics for his entire life, really. 
And um, I, I feel like the Democrats have done well when they pick young, kind of new generation, charismatic leaders. You know, if you look at Bill Clinton, uh, if you look at Barack Obama, and you know, I thought somebody like Pete Pete Buttigieg might be sort of in that kind of mold. But they went with you know a guy who's just a couple of years from. 80 years old. But I think, you know, he, he mentioned in his victory speech that he was supported by, uh, you know, uh, black Americans and, and they did, they voted en masse for Biden. And I think that, um, is, is really a, a vote of confidence, literally, um, just in his ability to tone down the temperature, just to bring it down, to, to calm down and try and, you know, rebuild, uh, the damage that, uh, that has been done over the last four years for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Cam, I got to ask, if you were part of President Trump's communications team at this point, um, we know he's sort of doubled down on on the initial rhetoric around, you know, um, stealing the election. What are you, what is your counsel? I mean, what do you say? How do you try and drive the narrative going going forward in, in, in supporting him and trying to you know, uh, get the result that he's looking for, however um, uh, unlikely that may be. Yeah, I think it's really hard dealing with President Trump. I mean, I, I think uh, from a communications perspective, I think this goes for any candidate who appears to have lost is to be gracious. I think that's a, a really big part of the U.S. system is the expectation to do that, actually, because it's not written down anywhere that this is how you have to behave. But it's putting the system, the country, the democracy above your own interests. And I think that's something that Trump has really struggled with, um, you know, throughout his his presidency. You know, it really is about him and how he feels about things and, um, you know, coverage of him. Um, it really animates a lot of what he says and does. So I think it, it would be difficult to try and change him at this stage. Um, but I think, you know, from a communications angle, one would be, is there any evidence of problems at voting booths or in these counting centers? I know in Philadelphia, they've just got, they're using one of their, one of their arenas there, I think, or a convention center, you know, to count uh, all of the ballots there. You know, I think it really is important if there's evidence of this, then then they have to really bring it forward because I think if there was voter fraud or there were, you know, questions somewhere, I think that would be legit. That would be legit. I, I, I think that that would be something that, you know, we'd have to take a look at. But if he has nothing, then it just looks like petulance, really. And, you know, I, I do think he should concede, you know, give strong words uh, to, you know, thank his, his, his supporters, you know, thank his wife and his family who were with him in the white house a lot of the time, um, you know, and just say that the movement that he started will, will continue, you know, even under, under president Biden, which I think is, is going to be the case. I don't think Trump, uh, I don't see him sort of going away and fading away like past presidents. As long as he has his, his Twitter account, he's going to be commenting on things, but I, I think he could rehabilitate his image a little bit, uh, among the left and other Americans a little bit by, by being gracious now, but I'm not sure if that's really in his genes to do that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. All right, you and I've got two two things. Just because we're talking so much about the election today, I wanted to point to, to two uh, interesting discussions. They're both on podcasts that I've mentioned before. Uh, one is on the media, which is WNYC. Um, you know, they've got a, a fifty minute 
podcast looking at the media coverage and the media reactions and sort of uh, you know the, the the different things that the the anchors and the presenters were doing throughout the election interesting stories um, you know well worth a listen to if you kind of want to get a behind the scenes look at that stuff I ended up watching CNN for most of it uh, and John King was standing at his uh, his 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 board there uh, tapping into counties and he seemed to know everything about every tiny county in the country um, and John King has been one of my favorite reporters since I was, you know, a teenager, basically. He's extremely good live. He's extremely smooth. He's very knowledgeable. He's also very humble. Um, and I actually, I had the pleasure to meet him a couple of years ago in Hanoi because I went down there for something in Vietnam. And I ran into him at the War Museum uh, where John McCain has some of his... Uh, some of his things because he was shot down over over Hanoi uh, during the Vietnam War, and uh, I, I spoke to King for a while, and he really is that way in real life. He's extremely humble, extremely kind, very friendly, uh, and it was it was kind of a thrill to 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 meet him. Um, the, the second one, Ewan, really is the Ezra Klein show. He had Evan Osnos on as a guest, another person I've met a few times. Osnos lived in China for a long time. He's a New Yorker staff writer, but he he has just published a book on Joe Biden. Uh, on Joe Biden's life. And I liked this discussion because it got into, I mean, we, we see the news coverage. We all know sort of he's been elected senator for a long time and he was Obama's vice president and, you know, these sort of major items in his career that, that I think people know about. But this goes much deeper into sort of how he views the world and sort of what his life experience has been and what really sort of animates him and and, and what he considers when he makes decisions and things like that. So I think it's a it's a really valuable sort of glimpse into into his thinking. And so I will put a link to both of those in the show notes. Fantastic. What have you got, Doug? I read an interesting article, Cam, that I thought was, it wasn't so much that the article was so fascinating, but the sort of the, what we're looking at in terms of the broader issue. And this was a, an article titled Leading from the Living Room. Eric Andrew Gee uh, wrote it for the Globe and Mail. And it looks at the ad tech firm Polar. I don't know if you're familiar with mm. them, Cam. They have offices in Toronto. They have offices in, in New York. And they severed all of their lease agreements, um, encouraged their workers to effectively raid the offices for furniture and supplies and what have you, and make Zoom the new permanent workspace. How many employees do they have? So it's, they're small and this is why it's sort of an interesting case study because it's a smaller company. They only have, as I understand, about 30 full-time employees at this point. Um, but it sort of poses that, that sort of really what I think is sort of one of the defining questions in the article sort of suggests the, the same thing of, of the pandemic, which is can businesses thrive when the fabric binding them together is digital? So I just thought from sort of a, a basic labor perspective, it's sort of interesting. So, you know, they interview a number of employees talking about things like fake commutes, the fact that they don't have to commute one worker who, who works at their New York office and lives in Brooklyn. You know, she's talking about, well, you know, I, I don't have to commute in and out of work anymore. So now I do a sort of fake commute where I get to go for a walk around the block and try and clear my head. Um, the company gave all of their employees an annual budget of fifteen hundred dollars in a, an attempt to sort of let them get their their offices their home offices up to snuff with um, with supplies. Kunal Gupta, who's the, the company CEO, he launched a daily uh, library, he calls it, period, 
where employees work together in a shared video call. And, you know, he said that he sort of designed it to try and recreate the experience of going to uh, a library with your friends when you're in university. Right. So, I mean, the idea, of course, everybody's sort of sitting around studying. They're not really talking to each other, but you're in the physical space of, of other human beings. He also does a, a weekly lunch table video conference and holds a, a twice weekly office hours on Zoom when any staff member can sort of dial in and get FaceTime with the CEO. So these are some of the sort of interesting pros. But then, of course, the article starts to explore some of the cons, which I think you know, are a little almost self-explanatory, right? It talks about this idea of, of weak ties, those sort of casual relationships, Cam, you know, that we, we form with, with other employees that have been shown to hold all kinds of potential to make us happier, ward off loneliness. Obviously, those have largely disappeared because you're not sharing that physical space with, with other workers. Uh, also, the lost art of conversation, work problems that, you know, you could sort of solve with like a 30 second chat in person. You know, these sorts of conversations are now sort of stretched out over dozens of wordy emails. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the quantity of communication has increased, but the quality of communication has, has dropped, which I think raises another interesting point that, that Gupta talks about, which is we need to start using the telephone again. <laughs> and I know this is a very controversial subject for you, Cam. I know you personally uh, do not appreciate people randomly picking up the phone and calling you unannounced. Yes. Um, drives me insane. I think, I think there's value. You know, I know from a legal perspective in talking to articling students and young lawyers, I always, 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 almost one of my top tips is learn to use the phone and the idea of being able to pick up the phone. If you can navigate a conversation with opposing counsel and you can negotiate on the phone, that skill set is so incredibly value valuable. It can save your clients a lot of money in legal fees. It can get you better settlements. It's a huge, huge asset. And I don't think that uh, law is sort of an isolated industry in that regard. I'm sure there are all sorts of businesses where young workers who are more often inclined to send text and have lost that connection to the phone call to actually speaking with other people, I think there's a lot to be gained there. Yeah. So for the sake of this podcast, I will quickly say dialing somebody unannounced, the reason I find it so abhorrent is that it's the equivalent of sort of busting into your your office or your home or wherever you might be without any care at all to what you were doing previously because it's it's very disruptive. I mean, it's something that interrupts what you're doing. So if I'm in a, a meeting at work and it might be an important presentation or something and someone just calls me and it rings, it's basically the person saying, I am the most important thing right now and you must drop what you're doing so I can talk to you. And I guess that's the part that I find very aggressive. And and so it, I'm not against using the phone. I actually agree with a lot of what you just said. Uh, you know, when I have instances where I'm dealing with reporters, for instance, like, yes, you can email them back, but nothing's going to replace a conversation where you can kind of, you know, just chat about whatever, get to know them, be chummy, um, you know, and, and get your message through that way. So in full agreement of that, just 
if you're going to call somebody, just just text them first and say, I'm going to give you a call or can I give you a call? That's all. That's it. But on the on the on the other stuff, you and though quickly, um, I, I, I'm really actually quite fascinated by this sort of future of work question. And I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation. I think there already is. I think obviously some of it will work and some of it won't. And I don't think we can completely um, sort of replicate a human to human in person experience digitally. I just don't think it's possible. But I will say, I think we lose technology or we don't get full benefits of technology when we try and use it to replace something analog. Technology should actually liberate you from the way that you were doing it before and provide an alternative. Um, I think that's when it when it becomes really effective. But I think we start out this way. We start out thinking, okay, here's all the stuff I have to do at work. Now, how can I do all these things digitally? And usually over time, you start realizing you can actually drop some of those things or do it a different way. Um, but that but that takes some time to figure out. Yeah, you know, you make a you make a great point, Cam, in, in terms of digital trying to replace something that's analog that doesn't really, really work. And one of the examples in this article in, in with regard to that lunch table video conference, you know, where colleagues can kind of eat and catch up. Well, obviously, if you're sitting in a lunchroom with a number of employees, any number of discussions can be going going on simultaneously. You can't do that over a Zoom call. If everybody's participating in the same Zoom call, effectively, you can have one discussion. You can't have a series of side discussions unless you're going to sort of introduce breakout rooms, I guess, which kind of defeats the purpose. Um, So, yeah, to your point, you know, it's cool. And I think it's sort of interesting to explore these ideas. And again, it's this is just sort of tip of the iceberg stuff, like a lot of tech, right? You know, a lot of tech products start out not being particularly efficient. Well, but that's the jumping off point. And then eventually they get to a place where they are remarkably efficient. And I think this is almost sort of trying to reinvent that workplace in its infancy. So, you know, is this going to be the be all end all? Well, no, not right now, but maybe we will get to a place where um, that tech is not as good as the analog, but at least better than what we're currently working with digitally. Yeah. And Zoom itself is quite limiting, actually. It's not a very sophisticated product. And um, I know that there are some events organizers uh, that are turning to other software products. I know there's a couple of them that do permit breakout rooms. They actually have a sort of a lounge area where you can sit and chat with whomever. Um, So they are trying to replicate all of that. And um, this is all very new and as a result of the pandemic. But I think, you know, the reviews back on some of these are quite positive because, you know, that was the biggest problem is you can attend event, you know, digitally, but it's still just you and a million other people's faces on the screen and one person talking at a time. So, that, you know, that's just not going to work. Um, you do want to talk to the people around you. So um, it, it's going to be absolutely fascinating seeing how this stuff sort of evolves over the next few years, because I think um, five years from now, this could all be very different. Uh, all right, you and we've gone long here. A lot to cover today. Do you want to anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, only that, um, you know, I've received some some great feedback uh, about our chat with with Allison Lee last week. If anybody missed that, you know, I'd highly recommend you go back and take a listen. Allison appeared before the Supreme Court dealing with one of the first employment law issues to go before the Canadian Supreme Court in some time. And uh, really, really interesting chat. And thanks to all the people that that wrote in um, to to say that they they found that 
interesting and, and, and cool. Cause I think it was a great chat. Yeah. Allison was absolutely excellent uh, last week. And I think we're going to have a special guest next week. Ewan. I'm going to keep that under wraps, but we could uh, get some good PR insights on episode 32. I can't believe we've recorded so many um, already. So thank you guys again so much for joining us. It really means a lot. Um, don't miss a show. You can subscribe in your podcast app of choice, or you can subscribe to our YouTube SoundCloud channels or via our newsletter. And you can find that at prlawpodcast.club. We're also on social media, all the usual ones, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The account name is prlawpodcast. So this was a fun one. Thank you everyone for listening. For you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 